This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. We're talking about altering reality and disrupting change today. How do you disrupt change? I don't know either. But according to Matt Armitage, it has something to do with virtual reality. Matt, um, disrupting change? Okay, stay with me here. Uh, A couple of weeks back, I did an episode of A Bit of Culture, and I was talking Uh about virtual reality and how it has the potential to be used not just as a catalyst for new experiences, but also as a means of control. Now, I don't know if I was just having a a bad day, but my uh, argument uh, on that show was pretty muddled and unclear, and I think I probably came across as a bit of a crackpot and maybe even a conspiracy theorist. So I thought I'd revisit the topic here and hopefully frame it a little bit better. Or just to reassure people that you are a crackpot? That's always possible. You know, the bigger discussion around that, which I hope I will be able to elucidate more clearly today, is the way that technology is being used as an agent of social change in our lives, how it's solving problems, but more importantly, who it's actually solving those problems for. So where did the inspiration for this uh, brain gasp come from? Well, as usual, something I read online. I mean, we all live our lives online at the moment. Uh, So this is an article at uh, Wired.com by a writer called Matthew Galt. It's titled Billionaires See VR as a Way to Avoid Radical Social Change. So you can see there that the argument is probably quite simple and straightforward. You know, we live in a resource-limited world, but our wants are essentially unlimited. We all want to live somewhere nice. If we've got kids, we want to send them to the best schools. We want to have exciting and fulfilling work and social lives. But that is potentially an unrealistic goal because there aren't enough resources in the world to meet all of those unlimited uh, wants and needs. Mm. And this is where technology like VR steps in to provide an approximation of those desires. So it's really about that balance and asking whether big tech is focused more on uh, creating virtual facsimiles of the things we want, rather than using its skills to advance equity and increase equality. Isn't that point about limited resources a valid one? Yes, but, you know, these aren't insurmountable issues. You know, that's where technology and social design can be a force for good. I don't know if I've mentioned the 15-minute cities movement on the show before. Uh, That's something we'll have to tackle in a future episode. But briefly, the idea is that city dwellers should be able to access all the essential services and amenities they need, from supermarkets to pharmacies to health centres and swimming pools, within a 15-minute walk of where they live. Now, these are deliverable goals. Cities like Paris are aiming to create that Mm. within uh, within their environs. But when we're talking about everyone living in their own swank mansion with every conceivable gadget, you know, driving a cool ride, wearing designer threads, those are the wants that we can't realistically meet for everyone. And is this where virtual reality comes in, to create those approximate worlds? Well, going back to that Wired piece, the writer, uh, Galt, 
quotes people like former Oculus CTO John Carmack talking about using the technology to skirt those resource allocation problems and bring economic value to people. So certainly the stage at which the technology is currently at, it's not there yet, but maybe in the future, this is something that we'll start to see. You know, as the technology gets better, VR experiences are looking less like Minecraft and more closely approximating real life. Mm. So that makes the possibility of living out your fantasy life much more of a reality. So letting your imagination run wild, giving you the clothes, the property, the lifestyle. You know, it's this idea of LARPing going digital again, if that's mm. not to meta a description. In, in every other words, like every VR-based science fiction movie ever, in a way, you know, Ready Player One is a good example. Um, it's people living in a poverty-stricken dystopia. You know, they live in houses that are made of these precarious stacks of trailers. The cities look like wastelands. But they get to escape the poverty and environmental degradation. And they get to navigate, you know, a thousand worlds as soon as they get online. Mm. The difference is that real life is already starting to blur with the edges of that world even more so since the pandemic started. Look at the range of artists from Travis Scott to Marshmallow who've performed live shows in Fortnite. Now, this has happened at a time when most real live venues are closed, and these performances blend gameplay with avatars and live casts. They aren't a simple telecast of a show. There's something completely new. Very much so. You know, weirdly, they actually allow the performer to interact more. The technology is a barrier of one description, but you no longer have those issues of stage and audience, which you have with a traditional live show. Mm. So how you run the show and incorporate the people, the audience, into that performance becomes about your imagination instead of something to do with logistics and safety. So when we look at open worlds, you have all of these flexibilities. You can customize your avatar, you can build your own persona, Many worlds have their own currencies, so you can hang out at clubs and bars and meet friends, you can go shopping. And none of this is actually new. You know, it's been happening since the early 2000s with platforms like uh, Second Life. Duran yep. Duran, of all people, did a virtual gig on Second Life way back in 2006. And a lot of the bacchanalian scenes in the Bruce Willis movie Surrogates looked remarkably like things that were happening at that time in Second Life. Then there is that potential for VR spaces to open and, and enrich our lives. Well, of course, you know, going back to that concert experience, uh, when we go onto social platforms and forums, you start to see a fairly large group of people who've never been to a live concert in real life. Mm. Or maybe they've been to one or two and they didn't really enjoy the experience. So they've only ever really experienced live music through a screen through mm. telecasts, which if you're at a big stadium concert with seats towards the middle of the back, that's arguably what you're doing anyway, you know, yeah. just for a lot more money and a lot less comfortably. You know, at many of these big stadium gigs, because the artist is so far away from where you're sitting, you have to watch them on the screens on the side of the stage. Mm. So, you know, I'm a fan of small gigs where you're up front and close to the artist, even when you stand at the back, which is where I usually am. 
but that limits you to a certain type and size of artist. So from my perspective, I would rather watch a big act in Fortnite or on my computer rather than paying these huge sums to sit on a plastic bucket seat somewhere up in the gods and spend most of the day, you know, queuing to get in, queuing to get to the toilet, queuing to buy food, and then queuing to leave. Okay. Now, um, discounting your old man uh, agoraphobia, uh, could we also see the benefits of, of VR in other aspects of our lives? Sure. And that goes back to our online lives over the past 12 months. So depending on where in the world you live, you've done all your meetings in Zoom or something similar. You've been studying online. You may have had consultations with doctors online. So banks, insurance, most of the service industries, it's all been digital. And mm. for a lot of people, it's been a really frustrating experience. It's allowed some semblance of normal life to continue, but there has been a cost. You know, in previous shows, we've highlighted how much more tiring it is to interact with people digitally rather than in real life. So virtual reality might help to improve that virtual experience, that digital experience, and give you more of a feeling that you're in, actually in a room with people, as well as providing more of the nonverbal and behavioral cues that we miss from those person-to-person -person interactions. But it isn't. Uh, but isn't the point to get back to that normality rather than to seek an alternative to it in VR? Sure. You know, last year we talked a lot about uh, 2020 being a giant experiment, an experiment in new business methodologies, an experiment in distributed working. The same goes for education, e-commerce and delivery services, you know, coming full force to even the smallest retailers. And we've learned that we don't all have to be in the same office to work. In fact, you know, BFM has worked as mm. a station over the last year with half of the staff being out of the office at any one time. So we don't have to be in the same lecture theatre or classroom to learn. So that aspect of the movie Ready Player One, where people learn and work and to an extent socialise online, VR could make those experiences much more enriching and satisfying for us in our non-fiction lives. But that still leaves us w with that issue of, of hardware, though. Yes, you know, your previous version, Jeff Sandu, was a, a big VR fan, and I've always been a sceptic. Uh, I do apologise for the, the noise of my cat, Jafar. It's going to be impossible to keep him off this recording. So decent virtual reality rigs are expensive. The headsets can cost as much as $1,000. And then you need a powerful gaming PC setup to get the most out of them because the environments require a lot of processing grunt and they do eat through data. And as Matthew Galt points out in his Wired piece, they don't necessarily operate optimally out of the box. They're going to need a bit of tinkering with, mm. which is probably a drawback if you're the kind of person who can't switch a kitten filter off your Zoom feed. Mm. And as much as uh, these technologies are supposed to be an escape, they actually require a lot more empty, vacant space to make the most of them than a, a lot of people have access to. Like most VR rigs require about, I, I think, about two or three meters squared mm. because of the physical movement required. Not to mention the fact that you're wearing a blind box that puts your meat suit at risk in the physical world. But that's more of an early adopter argument, though, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, for sure, virtual reality has a, a growing following. So VR game titles like uh, Half-Life Alex, which was uh, released in March last year, that sold around uh, 2 million copies, which is, you know, a, a pretty good figure. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077, which we've talked about for mm. all of its flaws, has sold in excess of 13 million copies to date. So VR is growing, but it's not the most popular way to experience open world platforms, at least not yet. So the accessibility of the technology is uh, still a major limiting factor. And, you know, as I said on the uh, A Bit of Culture episode, I don't think virtual reality will really catch on until we can free ourselves from those headsets. You're determined to have a holodeck, aren't you? I am, but also on a practical level, you know, to really give people the experience of living in a mansion or having a coffee in Central Perk, I think we're going to need something that is immersive and a lot less intrusive. Mm. So how long it's going to take to get to that point from a technology standpoint is anyone's guess at the moment. But I think we have to be able to blend the real world and the virtual much more successfully to make it a, a realistic and mainstream proposal, uh, certainly than the kind of uh, augmented reality hybrids that we have today. And a lot of those, you know, they really just amount to holding an iPad up to your face and looking at overlays of the, the real world. So the technology is not necessarily that helpful. Mm. So whether that emerging tech comes from holodeck type screens or pass through glasses and contact lenses still remains to be seen. But also for the kind of control options that we'll be talking about after the break, I think the technology will definitely have to advance. All right. Disrupting change. When we come back here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Bring forth Malaysia. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back. This is BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury. You are listening to Matt Splained. And of course, this week, uh, Matt Splained is all about the people. Yes. You heard right, our own audio tyrant wants to protect you from cartoon villain billionaires. Listening to that first half, it sounds as though you think VR on the whole is a good idea, Matt. Well, it goes back to that thing that people used to say and that everyone has now kind of wised up to, which is that technology is neutral. It isn't. Um, mm. Many things can affect the impact that technology has on our lives, how widely available it is, for example, how affordable, how easy it is to use, and of course, how impactful we find it. You know, you can go on listing and listing things that affect the, the neutrality of technology for hours. So something that has had a major impact is how that technology is owned and controlled. And that's one of the reasons we find ourselves in this weird position of loving and hating social media platforms at the same time. You know, we love that they connect and entertain us and they provide a creative outlet for many of us, but we hate them because of the way their algorithms control the information we see 
in the way they monetize our lives. You know, this nagging feeling that we're being manipulated and exploited. And of course, this flood of class action lawsuits from nation states around the world attempting to limit the power of companies that have turned into agenda-defining monopolies. But how does that link uh, to VR? Uh, As you mentioned, it's still very much a, a niche environment. Well, one of the reasons we find ourselves in this current relationship with tech companies is because we didn't think through the long-term implications of where their growth would take them. Not many people in the year 2000 would have thought that struggling online bookseller Amazon would be in a position to act as a gatekeeper to everything from groceries to clothing to healthcare. We didn't realize what dominating the market for search meant, essentially that uh, algorithms we don't have access to get to select what information is prioritized in the searches we make, or that a tool for connecting college students would end up with billions of users and become their primary source of news and other information. So we didn't understand how powerful these intermediaries would become in controlling the flow of information. Governments and regulators and commentators also didn't think through the implications of the freemium model that a lot of these businesses based their revenue generation on. Including you? Absolutely. I mean, I thought that freemium could empower us all. You know, the idea that air travel might one day become free if we paid for it with advertising, that was an exciting one. Mm. You know, selling advertising and data to provide all of these services free looked like being a way to turbocharge digital adoption and the creation of digital economies. And it also promised to be transformative in developing countries where incomes were lower than the developed world, but rising fast. And big companies were evaluating their potential as future markets. Now, that might not have turned out to be the case, but you can argue that it was the right choice at the time. What few of us realized is how good those companies would get at making money from the way they target us and use those free services and monetize those free services. And also the kind of political as well of economic power that they would develop and wield. Uh, You're referring to uh, the uh, standoff between Facebook and Australia earlier this year. Yeah, despite all the coverage it received, you know, if it hadn't been overshadowed by COVID and political events in the US, I think everyone would have made a much bigger deal out of that. You know, Facebook faced off against one of the world's top 15 economies, and it was the country that blinked. Mm. You know, both sides claimed victory, but I think Facebook emerged slightly ahead. So whether that will be the case with similar legal challenges to the way the company uses content and does business in other countries, well, you know, obviously that's still to be decided, but a precedent has been set. So there's a a fascinating piece on New Scientist titled uh, Self-Explanatorily, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars to Fix Climate Change and End Poverty. Now, a trillion dollars is a lot of money, but it's less than the US stimulus bill that was passed this week. It's less than half the value of Apple and rather less than the values of companies like Microsoft, Amazon and Google's parent Alphabet. So as much as those companies are integral to my life, I'd trade any one of them to fix those problems. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in having that view. Yeah. 
and, and that's why you think we, we should be focusing on, on VR now, because of, of what it could be. Partly, as I said earlier, I think VR has enormous potential. So opening access to the world's top universities, for example, with virtual campuses, we lose the potential of so much talent because of imbalances in you know basic services like education. Uh, that trope about Einstein being a, a mediocre student may be overstated, but he certainly underperformed in some of his university entrance exams. So what would it have taken for the world to have been deprived of the genius of Einstein? Mm. And when you look at that, how many other people have fallen through the cracks? So distance learning is already making the world's top schools more accessible, not just in terms of degree courses, but the kind of more flexible and fluid learning that platforms like Coursera offer, where you can take short courses, which are often free, from those big name institutions. So virtual reality could make that experience much more valuable and build on the first steps that those institutions have made. And it's a similar story with medicine. Virtual reality enabling specialists to see patients in a dozen countries in a single day. Um, but you're worried about access and power. Again, partly, you know, we'll do an episode on the right to repair soon as well. I, I'm stacking up so many topics to tackle right now. <laughs> Can we go to a daily show? Um, no, there, there's that issue of uh, ownership. We already see it with the devices we own. We own the hardware, but not the software that runs it. Mm. And without the software, those devices are essentially useless. Mm. Uh, increasingly, that also includes cars as well as agricultural and commercial machinery, especially the newly emerging electric vehicles. You know, we can only service and repair those devices or vehicles at authorized dealers. Uh, and those dealers and manufacturers can void warranties if we tinker with them ourselves. So virtual reality has the potential to replicate those same models. You can have a virtual mansion, but you can't own it. And we aren't just talking about a single house. We're talking about entire virtual worlds. So those companies are setting themselves up essentially as private governments. They control the laws, the property rights, the public behavior, and they have the power to sanction you or delete your possessions within that, that virtual world. But in a way, this is actually the easy fix because it's something that governments can control if there's enough public will there to do it. So your argument about VR is actually a, a real world one. Well, essentially, so go, go back to what I mentioned about 15-minute cities. That movement is looking to create livable cities. But the extreme outcome of virtual reality would be to create livable virtual cities instead. And that could be an enticing option for a lot of lawmakers because improving the living conditions and welfare of billions of people around the world is a complicated and expensive task. Mm. VR offers you an escape route. Instead of giving citizens a better house or flat in the real world, you give them a virtual mansion. Instead of fixing public transport you give them a virtual economy. Instead of stabilizing the climate, we go online and choose whatever weather pattern best suits our mood. So when you say this is about disrupting change, it's about control. 
Well, yeah, we've seen over the last few years, especially that societies have become a lot more activist in nature. So people are pushing back against lawmakers and corporations. They want action on equality. They want action on climate change. They're demanding better jobs, better wages, better living conditions, better cities to live in. And we're seeing that trickle-down effect not happening in the way that it's been promised. So tax cuts are going to be irrelevant to you if you're working three jobs and you're still subsisting at the poverty line. So these are things that are pitting us directly as individuals against the desires of big tech. Look at the drive to unionize Amazon warehouses in Alabama in the US, for example, mm. or the disproportionate effect that the coronavirus has had on low-paid essential workers who've had to go to work and risk their lives in workplaces over the last 12 months. And, and you see those tech-based solutions as a bit of a fudge? Well, it goes back to that original argument about limited resources, but it neatly sidesteps the issue of redistributing those resources and the power that goes with them. So in a way, it's a bit like rich and powerful people saying that we know that life is unfair. And rather than using some of the wealth they've accumulated to undo those injustices and inequalities, they offer us a virtual facsimile of their own lifestyle. So VR here is simply an example. You know, it's an emerging industry and I'm conjecturing about the path that it could take. Whereas with the big tech companies, that power is already on display. Mm. The influence is being wielded. That was what we saw in Australia with Facebook. It was on display to a different extent, admittedly, in Canada when Alphabet's uh, Sidewalk Labs walked away from a smart city project in Toronto that had raised uh, a lot of data privacy concerns. Mm. And, you know, I have to be clear, not everyone is going to agree with my vision. You know, a lot of people may be fine living in a coffin apartment and spending their time in a virtual mansion. You know, the, the matrix may be somewhere that you choose or prefer to live. But those are choices that we should make. They shouldn't be made for us. You know, if you take the example of the matrix, that world has already been destroyed. Ours can still be changed and improved. And as customers and users uh, and consumers, we forget that we can be disruptive too. But this is the kind of disruption that big tech is far less keen on. Thank you very much, Matt. And of course, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. And if you did miss any part of this show, don't forget, you can head over to uh, the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store to download the BFM app and stream the podcast back whenever you'd like to. You're listening to BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.